Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. And good night. And good night. Welcome to the History of Ancient Greece podcast with Ryan Stitt. We are not Ryan. Nope. In case you haven't figured it out. I am Allison Innes. And I'm Darren Sundstrom. And we are the co-hosts of Myth Take. So we just want to take a quick minute to tell you about our podcast, which looks at the myths of ancient Greece. We, I don't know, what do we do? We uh, talk about the literature, we do passage analysis, and have discussions about ancient myth. Different themes and topics, so not so much storytelling as looking at the plays and poems, everything from Homer and the Homeric hymns. And the tragedies of Euripides, Euripides, Sophocles, and Aeschylus. Yeah, lots of material. And we would love for you to join us and let us know what you think and join the conversation that we have every episode. And where can they find out more about MythTake, Allison? Well, they can go to the handy website, mythtake.blog. They can find us on iTunes and Google Play. And you can join our conversation on Twitter with the hashtag MythTake. And I'm at Innes Allison. And I'm at Darren Sundstrom. But why are we really here? Well, we're here to introduce Ryan's podcast episode. And this week, it is about Herodotus. I love Herodotus. I do too. I do too. What do you love about Herodotus? Wow, he's fascinating. Um, Why is he fascinating? He's got very interesting stories. Sort of the National Enquirer of the ancient world. Yeah. It's myth and it's logos. You be the judge. Yeah, he likes to report on all kinds of interesting things that may or may not be true. The strange and mysterious. Lots of great digressions. Giant ants. Yeah. Oh, and those sheep with the with the tails that are sure. so big. Giant yeah. tails. Okay, that sounds good. And funny. he talks about the Trojan War, too. The Trojan it? War. Yeah. That's all in there. Yeah. Oh, and a lot about Egypt, too. He's got an entire book on Egypt. Loves Egypt. All kinds of fascinating Egyptomania. stuff. Egyptomania. Yeah. I just call that Egyptomania. Yeah. So we are looking forward to what Ryan has to say about Herodotus. So we're going to turn it over to Ryan now and enjoy the show. There you go. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 30, Herodotus and the Rise of Persia While the Greeks were sailing their own seas and working out in their city-states the institutions of law and freedom, untroubled by any catastrophes beyond the shores of the Mediterranean, great kingdoms were rising and waning in the Near East. Of these, the Greeks, except for those on Cyprus, had very limited contact with the Assyrians. But beginning in the 7th century BC, The Greeks of Asia Minor came into conflict with the Lydians, as we have seen in episode 15, and then ultimately, the monumental war with the Persians, which we will discuss in the upcoming episodes. Because of this conflict, Persian history is undoubtedly bound to Greek history, as history is written by the victors. The Greek historians have so much influence that we still don't refer to Persian names in their own language, but by their Greek counterpart. The main source of information regarding these two comes from Herodotus's Historia, or Histories, which sought to explain the origins of the Persian Wars by studying the histories of the people involved, both Persians and Greeks. In addition, 
He provides a wealth of geographical and ethnographical information and stories about the people that the Persians conquered, the Medes, Lydians, Babylonians, and Egyptians, among others, as well as those from outside the Near East with whom the Persians interacted, such as the Scythians and Ethiopians. Although he wrote in the mid-5th century BC, a lot of his information came from the slightly earlier Ionian logographers, which can be translated as writers of words. Herodotus himself calls them the logopoioi, or makers of words. As we have discussed previously, the polis of Ionia were an intellectual and cultural hub between East and West, so it's no wonder that philosophy, which we discussed in episode 19, and historical writing, which we are about to talk about, all developed there. The philosophical pursuit and a purely rational way of understanding what underlies the natural phenomena in our world, apart from the gods, can also be reflected in the development of historiography as a way to grasp a better understanding of the underlying causes for certain events of the past and thus understand the present better. According to Dionysius of Halicarnassus, there were seven logographers whose works are all lost, save from a few fragments preserved in later sources. Cadmus of Miletus was the earliest of these logographers, and he flourished around 550 BC. He authored a history of the foundation of Miletus and of Ionia in general in four books and a history of Attica in 14 books. Quran of Lampsacus authored a history of Persia, Libya, and Ethiopia, and of the Chronicles of the Spartan Kings. Hellenicus of Lesbos provided the earliest known account of the founding of Rome by Aeneas. Xanthus of Sardis authored a history of Lydia. Hippus of Regium wrote histories of Italy and Sicily. Emles Agoras of Chalcedon wrote an account of Attica. The best attested of them all, though, was Hecateus of Miletus, who lived from 550 to 476 BC. He wrote a pioneering work of systematic geography called the Periodos Gais, or the Periagesis, which literally means the journey around the earth. Written in two books, the first included Europe and the second Asia and Africa. It is a comprehensive work on geography, beginning at the Straits of Gibraltar and going clockwise, following the coasts of the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and then back to the Mediterranean until it ends at the Atlantic coast of Morocco. 300 fragments of his work are preserved as citations in later Byzantine authors. His other work was a book on mythography called the Genealogiae or the Genealogies in which he takes a skeptical approach to the traditions of certain families who claim to be descended from the gods. Only 40 fragments remain. Besides these two written works, Hecateus is also credited with improving the map of Anaximander, which he saw as a disc encircled by Oceanus. He is probably the first of the logographers to attempt a serious prose history and to employ critical method to distinguish myth from historical fact though he accepts Homer and other epic poets as trustworthy authorities. The last logographer was Pherecydes of Leros, who flourished around 450 BC. Numerous fragments of his ten-book genealogies of the gods and heroes, which was written to glorify the ancestors in the heroic age of the patrons who commissioned him, have been preserved. He modified the legends to adjust them to popular beliefs. And so, Pherecydes cannot be classed with Hecateus, whose genealogies were more skeptical and critical. However, he would become the main source for the mythological encyclopedia, called the Bibliotheca, written in the Hellenistic period. There will be much more on this in a future episode. 
So these are the people whose literary works Herodotus had to rely upon. We are unsure to what extent, though, because Hecateus was the only one of them that Herodotus cites by name, and he only does it once, and he's poking fun at him. Regardless, what separated the logographers from the epic poets of the Trojan War cycle is that they wrote these stories in prose, in the Ionian dialect, and as such were the pioneers of history writing. They attempt it, although not successfully, to separate the mythic past from the true historic past. Their criticism, however, amounts to nothing more than a crude attempt at rationalizing the current legends and traditions connected with the founding of cities, the genealogies of ruling families, and the manners and customs of individual peoples. And so, modern scholars see them more as chroniclers rather than historians. Still, they marked a crucial step in the development of genuine historiography. Herodotus would take what they accomplished one step further, though, and for this, he is widely referred to as the father of history, both by ancient authors, such as Cicero, who first gave him the designation, and modern scholars even today, because he was the first known author to break away from the Homeric style and treat historical subjects as a method of investigation. He collected his material systematically and critically and then arranged them into a historiographic narrative. Herodotus classified the information contained in his work into three categories. What he saw himself, what he was told by eyewitnesses, and what he learned from hearsay alone. His systematic classification of information is what made him recognized as a serious historian. In fact, he introduced his work by stating that his narrative was a result of his historia, which means research or inquiry. This is the first use of the term on the historical record, and thus provides the name for his genre of literature, history. So here, Herodotus is equating history with looking into things. It's not just perceiving stories or having the muses inspire you. Herodotus does this, and I quote, so that human achievements may not become forgotten in time, and great and marvelous deeds, some displayed by Greeks, some by barbarians, may not be without their glory, and especially to show why the two peoples fought each other, end quote. Some of his stories are fanciful, and others inaccurate, but he states from the beginning that he was reporting only what was told to him, sometimes with multiple versions of each account, but he did not glibly believe all that he was told. He writes, I write these things as they've been told to me, but the stories told by the Greeks are various, and in my opinion, absurd. Where there are conflicting traditions, he does on occasion show a willingness to express openly or imply his preference for one version, but on many occasions, he simply narrates the many stories and leaves it to the judgment of the reader to decide which one is more true. Herodotus, though, also was inspired by the works of other poets and storytellers. For example, the Athenian tragic poets, which will be covered in a later episode, provided him with a worldview balance between conflicting forces, upset by the hubris of kings, and they provided his narrative with a model of episodic structure. Homer was another inspirational source. Just as Homer drew extensively on tradition of oral poetry, sung by wandering bards, so too does Herodotus appear to have drawn on an Ionian tradition of storytelling as he collected and interpreted the oral histories he chanced upon in his travels. These oral histories often contained folktale motifs and demonstrated moral significance, yet they also contained substantial facts relating to geography, anthropology, and history, all compiled by Herodotus into an entertaining style and format. 
Thus, it is because of the many strange stories and the folk tales that he reported that many modern critics of his work have branded him not as the father of history, but the father of lies. He even had contemporary critics, such as Thucydides, who, as we will see in the future, took a more serious, buttoned-up, straightforward approach to history writing. So he mocked Herodotus for his frequent digressions and frivolous stories. Far more damning, though, is Herodotus' over-reliance upon Athenian sources and his frequent failure to recognize the presence of obvious prejudice and partisanship in their accounts. This is particularly obvious in his description of the actions in the Persian War, of those cities that would later become either allies or enemies of Athens. In the same way, Herodotus's treatment of those states that Medized, or joined the Persian side, during the Persian War, is shaped by their later relations with Athens. Those states who fought against Athens in the Peloponnesian War would be treated either more harshly, or their role was downplayed often in Herodotus's account, such as Corinth, Sparta, and Thebes. The second major criticism of Herodotus is his inability to identify and analyze the real causes of political events, concentrating instead on the personal motives and activities of certain individuals. Personal vengeance is a driving factor behind many of the events which he describes, and he goes into depth on those rather than focusing on the foreign policy issues or alternative options that were at play. Herodotus is also criticized for a lack of understanding of military tactics and strategy and for giving such major prominence to the continuous intervention of the gods in the affairs of men, thus accepting that they had played a very important role in the shaping of history. Herodotus held, no doubt, that the gods revealed their will to men in dreams or omens, especially through seers and oracles. Furthermore, he is happy to accept, without a hint of skepticism, any tale of the supernatural. He also shows an unwillingness to search for a historical explanation of an event, when a religious one was available. Thus, as we will see time and time again, although I am sure he was aware of all the political and military reasons that directly influenced a ruler's decision to invade another country, that said ruler would oftentimes only come to the conclusion through the influence of a dream from the gods or upon receiving an oracle. Regardless, his histories is a work of inestimable value, especially as he was forging a new genre of literature. Although Herodotus does have his critics, Usually by those who prefer Thucydides, the fact that his histories, in an extensive and difficult text owing to the language he uses, has been preserved in its entirety, whereas so many others have been lost, shows how much he was esteemed by both his contemporaries and by subsequent scholars alike. So since we will be using him an awful lot in the next handful of episodes, we should ask the question, who was Herodotus? Well, despite his historical significance, very little is known of this personal history. What we do know comes from the Suda, a Byzantine historical and literary encyclopedia written about the 10th century AD. According to the Suda, he supposedly lived from around 484 to 485 BC. He was born to upper-class parents in Halicarnassus, modern-day Bodrum, a city in southwest Asia Minor, which at that time was a part of the Persian Empire. Thus, a young Herodotus would have lived among the first-hand participants in the events of the Persian Wars. As a young man, he became involved in politics, in which he clashed with Lygdamus, the tyrant of Halicarnassus, and was forced into exile to Samos. Later, he took part in the overthrow of Lygdamus, but did not return to his home. Instead, he chose to travel to Egypt, to Tyre, down the Euphrates to Babylon, to Scythia, 
into mainland Greece, soaking up all that he can of the knowledge of the people and places that he would later write about. He lived for some time in Athens, where he wrote and gave recitations of parts of his histories. In 444-443 BC, he left Athens to settle in the newly founded Panhellenic colony of Thurii in southern Italy, near the devastated town of Sybaris. More on that in a future episode. There, he probably stayed until his death, although it is possible that he may have revisited Athens at some point. The Histories is the only work that we have that he produced, and it's the earliest surviving work of its kind. His Histories is divided into nine books, each of which bears the name of one of the nine muses. This division appears to have been made by an Alexandrian scholar, rather than by Herodotus himself, but it is considered to be successful. The length of the books is not uniform, because the obvious criterion was the internal conceptual units of the work and the weight that the author attaches to each of the historical events he sets out. Also, there is much scholarly debate about the order of composition of these books. This is further complicated by his wide-ranging approach to historiography, since he includes so much geography and ethnography. Some scholars believe that either Herodotus began writing as a geographer and ethnographer, having planned originally to publish the early books, for example, Book 2 on Egypt, as independent works, but gradually developed into a historian, composing a history of Persia and then proceeding to a history of the Persian War. Others believe that Herodotus had always planned from the beginning to write a full history of the Persian War, and that the geographic and ethnographic sections of his work are only carefully planned digressions from the main historical theme, which he had conceived on a far broader scale than the narrower concentration of on politics and warfare of Thucydides. There is insufficient evidence to prove either case conclusively, so take your pick. I'm more inclined towards the second option, because I like to think of Herodotus as this grand fireside storyteller, but that's just me. Anyways, most scholars do tend to agree that Herodotus must have gathered all the relevant data for his histories before he finally settled in Thurai, and it is possible that he wrote his book there in the order that it has come down to us. In addition to Herodotus, other Greek authors discussing Persia included Xenophon, who fought on one side of the Persian Civil War in the late 5th century BC, and Ctesias, a physician at the Persian court around that same time. Much of these Greek accounts were based on Persian oral tradition, so there is a level of unreliability present, as well as exaggeration and bias. So they must be used with great caution and have to be critically evaluated. Herodotus, for example, describes the Persians in the framework of his East versus West narrative. And so a fundamental difficulty lies in the fact that the Persians were the arch enemies of the Greeks, and so the negative bias towards them was very strong. Often the Greeks portrayed the Persians as the incarnation of all that was evil. They became a mirror image displaying all of the opposites of Greek virtues, such as excess, femininity, and so forth. But at the same time they are surprisingly nuanced, as one ruler may be depicted as a raging madman, while the other is a wise ruler with good strategic insight. Furthermore, the Greeks only cared about the western part of the empire, and provide virtually no information on its extensive eastern dominions. Although Herodotus did somehow gain access to some key Persian documents, he never learned Persian, or indeed knew any other language than his native Doric dialect of spoken Greek, and the literary Ionic dialect in which he wrote. One consequence of this was his erroneous belief that all Persian proper names ended in an S sound, or sigma. Unfortunately, 
Persian sources for Persian history are fairly limited. So before we completely dismiss Herodotus, we have to remind ourselves that even in the Greek world, there was no Herodotus before Herodotus. Even more to the point, there was nobody like Herodotus for the Persians either. Although the Persians developed a cuneiform-based alphabetic script to write their language, no old Persian literature has been found, except for inscriptions primarily devoted to recording the building activities of the Persian kings. So the Persians had scribes, lots of them in fact, but not one historian like Herodotus that we know of. Maybe there was a later Persian historian who recorded a fair and accurate look at them, but we will never know, because during the later Islamic period, Libraries filled with countless books and scrolls were all destroyed during the Mongol and Timurid invasions of Iran. But luckily for us, much like the Minoans and the Mycenaeans, with the Persians' love for bureaucracy and a passion for counting possessions, as well as by using artifacts, letters, inscriptions, and non-Persian sources, such as Elamite, Akkadian, Aramaic, Egyptian, Hebrew, Babylonian, and especially Greek accounts, we can piece together a fairly detailed albeit incomplete, representation of the story behind the rise of the Persian Empire. According to Greek legend, the mighty demigod Perseus, slayer of Medusa, had a son named Persis, who fathered the Persian nation. But in all actuality, they were one of several, who descended from an Indo-European people called the Aryans. Other linguistic Aryans are the Scythians, Cimmerians, Parthians, and Medes. Around 1000 BC, they had arrived onto the Iranian Plateau, a place rich in natural resources, such as gold, silver, copper, minerals, and semi-precious stones. The Scythians and Cimmerians inhabited the region north of the Caucasus Mountains and the Black Sea, in what is now modern-day Ukraine and southern Russia. The Medes settled in northwest modern-day Iran, and the Parthians settled in the northeast, both around the Caspian Sea area. The Persians, though, took the south, near the Persian Gulf, hence the name. Being as these tribes were nomadic, they were more interested in survival than conquest. But as they became less nomadic, they had to learn how to farm and how to cultivate the hot Iranian plateau. But in order to do that, they needed a source of water. Due to their location, the early Persians may very well have perished before they even started, had they not unlocked a source of water, and more importantly, a means to channel it to their crops and settlement. What makes this engineering feat so remarkable is that they found this source of water not from any rivers, lakes, or oceans, but from rocks. Using nothing more than stone chisels, they would build a breakthrough system of underground irrigation canals called canots. They began by harnessing gravity to exploit the natural topography of their land, which sloped downwards from the Alborz Mountains to the Persian Gulf. Vertical shafts were first dug down into the surface, and a tunnel was excavated horizontally for a short distance. Then, another vertical shaft was built, approximately three-quarters of a mile up the slope, and the channel continued. This process was continued until the desired destination was reached. The angle of the slopes, though, was crucial. It could not be too steep, because it would erode the base of the water channel, but not too flat as to prevent the water from moving to its intended destination. They were channeling massive amounts of water over long distances in hot, dry climates, with minimal loss due to leakage or evaporation. From Iran, the knowledge of this technology would spread both westward and eastward. 
The Persians and Medes both first appeared on the historical record by means of the Assyrians in the latter half of the 9th century BC. The Medes were a loosely organized group of tribes in the Zagros Mountains that grew wealthy through the domination of the Khorasan Road, which was the great trade route between southern Mesopotamia and the regions of central Iran and beyond. The desire to control the route led the Assyrian king, Sargon II, in the latter half of the 8th century BC, to seize this area. Unlike other parts of the Zagros, where they kept vassals in place, he broke it up into provinces, built fortresses, and levied taxes on the vast flow of overland trade, mostly paid in horses. Although most of the Median tribes had remained independent, Sargon II recorded receiving tribute from 22 of their chiefs. Over the succeeding years, the Medes often served the Assyrians as mercenaries and may have learned advanced military techniques from their masters. It was only in the 7th century BC, though, that a united media would become strong enough to contest Assyria for control of the area. Herodotus asserts that the Medes had been unified under a ruler known as Diochis, who, as he writes, was a man of great ability and ambitious for power. In a time when there was no unified government in the region, he was renowned for his righteousness and enthusiastic support for justice, and was chosen to be the judge for his village. When stories about him began to circulate, and the Medes and other villages heard about his integrity and fairness, they refused to submit to unjust verdicts any longer, and instead they went to see Diochis to arbitrate their disputes. Eventually, robbery and anarchy became rife again throughout the villages and the people decided that they needed a king to do something about it, and thus they chose the just Diochis, who then would rule as king for 53 years, from 708 to 655 BC. He set the seal on the union of Media by building the great city of Ekbatana, modern Hamadan, which was strategically located along the Khorasan Road in the Zagros Mountains. This became his capital city, and merchants passing east to west along the road were awed by its majesty. Its treasury and palace was on the center of a fortress and was encircled by seven massive concentric walls of white, black, scarlet, blue, orange, gold, and silver, with plates of precious metals adorning the innermost battlements. Herodotus here may be describing a ziggurat, a common ancient Mesopotamian religious building. In any event, Diochis was said to have lived withdrawn from the sight of his own people, who could only approach him with a written request when he needed to administer justice. And when they did meet with him, they were not allowed to look directly at him. He created all of this formality since they had grown up with him personally, and thus he wanted to create an impersonal public persona so nobody could feel resentment and plot against him. He also employed a network of spies, and if he heard anyone engaging in injustice, he summoned them to his court and rendered a judgment according to the severity of the crime. Herodotus's account, though, has some issues. The archaeological record shows that a provincial governor of Assyria during the late 8th century BC was called Dioku, so perhaps Herodotus is referring to the same person, but used the name in error. Dioku's son was held hostage by the Urartians, and thus supported the Urartians against Sargon II. It was a bad choice, though, as he was defeated and his family was exiled to Syria. So what do we make of this? Well, it seems that Herodotus' account was probably based on oral tradition, and so the chronological time frame gets pushed back a bit. It seems that Dioku, or Diochis, 
may have been in fact the founder of the Median royal dynasty, and thus was the first Median king to push for independence from Assyria. But Herodotus' account probably was centered actually on Diocles' son, Phraortes. But it must be noted that any connection between the governor mentioned by Sargon II and the founder of the Median dynasty is only hypothetical, as no single cuneiform source can confirm that they were the same person. In fact, it seems like another patented Herodotus misstep in terms of chronology here, as we have seen countless other times in his detail of the 7th and early 6th centuries BC. Furthermore, as I mentioned before, how Herodotus likes to add S's to the end of Persian royal names, well, here is an example. Herodotus reports that Phraortes, or Fravartis in Old Persian, reigned for 22 years from 655 to 633 BC. But many scholars assume that it was Phraortes, not Deokes, that had the longer 53-year reign that Herodotus ascribes, making his reign thus last from 686 to 633 BC. This seems most plausible to me. Like I said, Herodotus' chronology should always be taken with a huge grain of salt. Anyway, if this is correct, it has been suggested by some scholars that Phraortes can be identified with Kashtariti, who was mentioned as King of the Medes on an Assyrian inscription dated to 678 BC. However, most scholars deny such a connection based on historical evidence and linguistic differences in the native Iranian names of the two rulers. Kashtariti was probably just a local Median chieftain, which could be evidence that Media wasn't fully united by Diochis, as Herodotus says, and there were some holdouts, at least until Phraortes united all Median tribes into a single state. In any event, no matter how it happened, and by whom, Media was unified, and Phraortes was a strong enough king to extend his sway beyond the borders of Media. He subjugated Parthia to the northeast, and the hilly land of Persia to the southeast, and thus a large Aryan realm was formed, one that stretched from the Caspian Sea to the Persian Gulf. Assyria's destruction of Elam in 646 BC allowed the Medes to extend their influence widely into the Zagros Mountains and adjacent territories. In doing so, this brought Phraortes into conflict again with Assyria and their current king, the great-great-grandson of Sargon II, Ashurbanipal, who ruled from 668 to 627 BC. Phraortes, though, was defeated and killed in battle in 633 BC. As we mentioned before, they were also an Iranian nomadic people, originating from the area between the Black and Caspian Seas. And since they had aided the Assyrians in defeating Phraortes, as a reward for their help, the Assyrians left control of Media to the Scythians, effectively ruling as a vassal kingdom of the Assyrians. And so, for the next decade, the Medes were under the domination of a Scythian king named Mattius, who ruled over Media from 633 to 625 BC. The beginning of the Scythian rule over Media corresponds with the latter years of Ashurbanipal, but with the death of Ashurbanipal in 627 BC, numerous provinces and vassal states took the opportunity to slip out from under Assyrian rule. In 626 BC, Babylon revolted, led by the usurper Nabopolassar, who proclaimed a new Babylonian ruling dynasty. This is known to modern scholars as the Neo-Babylonians, to distinguish from the Bronze Age Babylonian ruling dynasty. Assyria would not regain control of Babylon, and so Nabopolassar maintained rule from 626 to 605 BC. Under the leadership of Phraortes' son, Syaxeres, Uvaxtra in Old Persian, the Medes had driven the Scythians from the Median capital of Ecbatana in 625 BC. 
He killed the Scythian leaders, Mattius included, and proclaimed himself as king of the Medes and declared Media free from all foreign domination. He ruled Media for 40 years, from 625 to 585 BC. These two incidents were a foreboding of what was to come. They would set off a chain of events that ultimately led to a serious downfall, as the empire was in no shape to put up a fight under the lackluster leadership of Ashurbanipal's sons. After being thrown out of Media, and with most of their leadership killed, the Scythians decided to do what they did best, which was sack and pillage like nomadic steppe tribes tend to do. Joined by the Cimmerians and other nomadic tribes, they swarmed en masse on Assyrian territories. Unable to capture the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, they continued toward the coast and then southward to Egypt. The Egyptian pharaoh Samatikos I, after throwing off the Assyrian yoke at the beginning of his reign several decades prior, had continued his policy of close ties with the Hellenic world, inviting colonists from the Greek mainland and elsewhere to settle in Egypt and to serve in his armed forces, as we have discussed numerous times before. As a result, Egypt quickly became unified once again and powerful enough to confront the nomadic raiders, and so he managed to drive them back northward. Spent from their series of assaults and laden with rich booty, the steppe tribes decided that they had had enough and rode back across Mesopotamia to their mountain homeland in the Caucasus and southern Russia, apparently without any Assyrian interference, which demonstrates the waning power of Assyria at the time. Meanwhile, Syaxares reorganized and modernized the Median army by dividing everyone into regiments and reorganizing each group into separate components, the infantry armed with spears, the archers, and the cavalry. Before this, the army was jumbled together into a chaotic mess. He then declared themselves free from all foreign domination. Even though they were still a mere collection of tribes, rather than a unified state, the Medes likely elevated Cyaxares to a position of leadership based on his exceptional military skill. The Medes looked down upon the wealthy lowlands of Mesopotamia, wrecked by chaos and civil war, and decided that the area was once again ripe for the picking. Cyaxares gathered the tribes of the Zagros Mountains, and in 615 BC, moved westward into Assyria. By that point, Assyria had managed to regain much control over their former territories, with the exception of Babylon. With their army depleted, the Assyrians had little hope of dislodging Nabopolassar. When the Assyrians received word that the Median and Babylonian armies were en route, they sent out messengers for an alliance with their old enemy, Egypt, and Samotichus I gladly accepted. He had apparently been unnerved by the recent Scythian invasion, and was also concerned that if Assyria were to fall, it wouldn't be very long before the Babylonians and Medes would set their sights on the conquest of Egypt. But his help would not arrive in time, and the Medians and Babylonians both showed up at the gates of Ashur in 614 BC. By the end of the year, Ashur would fall. The city was looted and sacked, with the majority of its population massacred, and the remainder carried off as slaves. It was during the sack of Ashur that the Median ruler Cyaxares first met the Babylonian king Nabopolassar. They quickly found their aims to be harmonious, and formally sealed an alliance through the marriage of the Median princess Amidas the daughter of Cyaxares, to the Babylonian crowned prince Nebuchadnezzar II. From then on, the Babylonians and Medes fought hand-in-hand against the Assyrians. By 612 BC, the Assyrian king, Sinshar Ishkun, had been driven back behind the walls of Nineveh and could only watch impotently as the Babylonians and Medes encircled his great capital. Nineveh fell three months into its siege, and enemy soldiers poured through its gates, 
eager to take violent revenge for centuries of abuse and repression. The Medes eagerly smashed tablets recording their earlier submission to Assyria. Homes were looted and burned. Citizens were slaughtered. Assyrian soldiers likely made their last stands defending the royal palace unsuccessfully, as Sinshar Ishkun, the last surviving son of Ashurbanipal, and the final heir to the great rulers of the mighty Assyrian Empire, was slain. Two centuries later, when the Greek historian Xenophon and his mercenary army passed the location of Nineveh, they were totally unaware that anything had ever stood there, let alone the enormous, sprawling, one-time capital city of the entire Near East. At the end of the 7th century BC, a balance of power now existed among the four chief nations of the Near East, Egypt under their pharaoh Necho II, and then Samatikos II, Babylonia under Nabopolassar, and then Nebuchadnezzar II, Media under Syaxares, and Lydia under Aliates. Nebuchadnezzar II ruled over Babylon from 605 to 562 BC. During his rule, the Babylonian kingdom rose into wonderful fame and brilliance. He drove the Egyptians out of Syria, defeating them in the great battle of Carchemish. He stormed Jerusalem and carried the Jews into captivity. He besieged Tyre, and although he was unable to take it, he wrecked their maritime trade capabilities, as we discussed in episode 28. He invaded and warred against Egypt in the Levant, until a border was firmly established between the two. But more famous than his conquest abroad were his mighty works back home in Babylon. He made Babylon arguably the greatest city in the world, and the stray Greeks who visited it came back with amazing stories of the palaces and the temples, and the hanging gardens, a terraced park, and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that he built for his Median wife, Amidas. But the gigantic walls which surrounded Babylon were his mightiest monument. Greek travelers reported that the circuit was more than 50 miles. The gates were especially monumental. Most famous is the Ishtar Gate, an entrance that was entirely decorated with glazed colored tiles, forming images of bulls, lions, and dragons in low relief. The awe in which Babylon was held is evidenced by Herodotus' description. Scholars, though, strongly disagree about whether he actually visited the city, a question that will never be answered. More important than establishing that fact is the clear indication that he saw the city as the epitome of wealth and majesty, and archaeological excavations have substantiated some of this image. Another of Nebuchadnezzar's works, a fortification, was a wall to the north of Babylon, from the Tigris to the Euphrates rivers, in order to defend his city against any future Median incursions from the north. The exploits of the great Babylonian king affected Greece little, though Greek mercenaries, including the brother of the poet Alcaeus, served under him. But the changes which had befallen the Near East were brought nearer to the Greeks by the encroachment of Media unto the Elydians. We covered the early history of Lydia in episode 15, for those who need a refresher. But if you recall, while all of these events we talked about this episode were taking place, the Lydian kings were busy minting coins, becoming fabulously rich, and warring with the Greeks of Ionia. In fact, Aliates was gearing up to start another war against Miletus, when events in the east drew his attention. The Medes had followed up the destruction of Assyria by conquering the rest of northern Mesopotamia, and then turning their attention even farther northward to the kingdom of Arartu, or modern-day Armenia. For 15 years, from 600 to 585 BC, Syaxares waged war against the Arartians. This caught the attention of the Elydian king Aliates, who feared that they would be the next target for the Medes. Herodotus reports a fanciful story that sparked conflict between the Lydians and the Medes. 
He writes that a band of Scythian nomads had once emigrated into Median territory because of a feud. Syaxares had treated him well at first, since they had come to him as suppliants. Over time, his esteem for them grew, and the young Scythian boys were allowed to go on royal hunting trips. But Syaxares, who had a violent temper, one day abused them physically for failing to bring any game back. Both enraged at this treatment to their honor, and also fearful of it happening again, the Scythians decided to seize a young Median boy, chop him to pieces, and prepare his flesh, just as they would normally have prepared the game they caught in the hunt. They then brought the dish to Syaxares and served it to him. After Syaxares and his guests ate the meat of one of their own people, the Scythians then fled to Sardis to the court of Aliates, who accepted them as suppliants. A disgusted and enraged Syaxares requested that Aliates surrender over the Scythians. When he refused, the Medes waged war against the Lydians. At least this is what Herodotus reports. In any event, war did happen, no matter the cause. So taking his own armies east to meet them, Aliates fought a first battle against Syaxares around 590 BC. Five years of constant warfare followed with neither side able to strike a decisive blow. Finally, on May 28, 585 BC, they fought a major battle along the Halys River. Evenly matched as before, the battle stayed a relative draw until the sky suddenly became darkened by a total eclipse of the sun, which had been predicted by the famous first Greek philosopher, Thales of Miletus. This made such a deep impression on the minds of the combatants that they laid down their arms and a peace was concluded. The two sides then brokered a peace deal. The proposed solution of establishing the Halys River as their common frontier was met with agreement from both sides. In addition, Syaxares' son, Astyages, was married to Arianus, the daughter of Aliates, so that neither would feel inclined to break the treaty. Also, they sealed the oath by making small incisions on the surface of their arms and licking each other's blood. Very peculiar indeed. But this was the median way of sealing deals, at least according to Herodotus. Anyway, with Astyages' sister, Amidas, already serving as the queen of Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon, for the first time in history, a single extended royal family ruled over all of Mesopotamia and Anatolia. Shortly after the Battle of the Halys River took place, Syaxares had died and was succeeded by his son, Astyages, who ruled the Medes from 585 to 550 BC. But while Nebuchadnezzar II and Aliates sat comfortably on their thrones, Astyages was restless. The Medes he ruled over were still semi-tribal, nomadic warriors at their core, hemmed into the west and south by peace treaties. He led his warriors north and east into the wild lands of modern-day Armenia and Azerbaijan. The victories he won there bought glory but little in plunder, leading them to realize that his royal siblings-in-law had the right idea after all, that is to sit comfortably in a palace at a capital city with a steady source of income flowing in instead of having to earn it the hard way on horseback. So, Astyages returned to Ecbatana to hold court and rule over all of his territory. To some Median tribes, this was distressing news. Many had remained free even during the dark years of Assyrian occupation, and they now feared that their own king's proximity would threaten their independence. In fact, they were right, and their tribal autonomy was increasingly subordinated to royal authority. The Achaemenid Persians dwelled in the former Elamite lands between the lower Zagros Mountains and the Persian Gulf. The supposed founder of the Persian royal line was a man named Achaemenes, hence the name of their dynasty. The term Achaemenid can be used interchangeably for the Persians. 
Achaemenes is attested on inscriptions of Old Persian as Hoxamanus, and he is purported to have ruled from around 705 to 675 BC. His earliest portrayal in the historical record is found in the 6th century BC on the Behistun inscription by Darius, but it may also be that this was an invention by Darius in order to justify his seizure of the throne. As such, Achaemenes could have been a creation by Darius in order to legitimize a dynastic relationship to Cyrus. There will be more on Darius in a future episode. In any case, the Achaemenids from Darius onward credited Achaemenes as the founder of their dynasty. Other than his role as the founding ancestor, nothing is known of his life or actions. Assuming he existed, Achaemenes may have been a 7th century BC warrior chieftain who led the Persians, or a tribe of the Persians, as a vassal of the growing kingdom of Media. Anyways, Achaemenes was said to be succeeded by his son Tespis, or Cispis in Old Persian, who ruled over the Persians from around 675 to 640 BC. Tespis had seized the ancient Elamite capital of Anshan and installed it as the first Persian capital, although they were still under the overarching authority of the Median kingdom. Upon his death, Tespis's sons, Cyrus and Ariaramnus, divided the territory of the Persians between them and ruled over the adjacent Persian kingdoms as Median vassals. Cyrus, or Kuras in Old Persian, ruled Anshan from around 640 to 580 BC, while his brother Ariaramnus, or Ariaramna in Old Persian, was king of Parsa. Kuras is mentioned on the Assyrian record as becoming subjugated to Ashurbanipal in 639 BC after he defeated the Elamites. His elder son, Aruku, was sent to Assyria to pay tribute as a hostage to Ashurbanipal. Kuras then seems to have vanished from this historical record. His suggested identification with Cyrus would help connect the Achaemenid dynasty to the major events of the 7th century BC. With the destruction of Assyria in 612 BC, Anshan and Parsa fell back under the control of Media. Not much is known about the reign of Ariaramnus, but he was succeeded to rule over Parsa by his son Arsames, or Arsama in Old Persian. Likewise, Cambyses, or Kambaya in Old Persian, succeeded his father Cyrus, and he ruled as king of Anshan from 580 to 559 BC. Sometime around 580 BC, the Median king Astyages had dreams plagued with visions of ruin. The most disturbing centered on his daughter, Mandani. Herodotus says that she urinated so copiously that a great flood sprung forth from her and demolished his palace, overwhelmed his kingdom, and flooded all of Asia. Herodotus once again shows that he has a way with words. Anyways, Astyages' advisors interpreted that she would give birth to a son who would destroy his empire. Troubled by these visions, he was fearful of his daughter having a union with another Mede of his own rank. So he decided to marry her off to a minor royal vassal, hoping to prevent this vision from coming to fruition. Eager to increase his own prestige amongst the Persians at the expense of his cousin Arzames, Cambyses of Anshan jumped at this chance to marry the daughter of Astyages. According to Herodotus, Cambyses was a man of good family and quiet habits, and he was chosen to be the royal son-in-law because Astyages believed that he posed no threat to the Median throne because he considered him much lower in status than even a middle-class Mede, which provides much insight into how the Medes viewed the Persians at this time, that even a king of the Persians was considered lower than a middle-class Mede. In 576 BC, when Astyages learned that his daughter was pregnant, he dreamt of a vine emerging from his daughter's genitals that grew until all of Asia was in its shade. 
Realizing what this meant, he brought back Mandani to media, where she gave birth to a baby boy named Cyrus after his Persian grandfather. For purposes of modern scholarship, he is referred to as Cyrus II, but henceforth in this podcast, he will just be Cyrus. Anyway, while Mandani rested, Astyages dispatched his most trusted general and kinsman, Harpagus, to kill the baby. He seized the newborn Cyrus and carried him off into the mountains, but Harpagus couldn't bring himself to commit the infanticide against the wishes of his own king, so he summoned one of Astyages' shepherds, a man named Mitridates, and ordered him to take the baby up into the mountainside and leave him to die from exposure. However, it just so happened that the shepherd's wife had been pregnant, and when he returned home, he found out that she had miscarried earlier that day. So they decided to leave the stillborn baby exposed on the hilltop and adopt the newborn Cyrus. When Harpagus returned three days later, he was taken to the hill where the dead baby was left and returned to the king with the news that the deed was done. Mandani was told that her baby did not survive the night. All of this is very similar to the myths surrounding the births of Moses, Sargon II, and Romulus. In fact, Cyrus is often credited for having the greatest number of character traits associated with a great leader of any person in history, including factors such as having his destiny prophesied and having his royal identity concealed during his humble upbringing. Cyrus might have spent his whole life undiscovered and unknown, but once at the age of 10, when playing a game of king, where all the boys did what they were told by the designated boy king, during Cyrus's turn, a son of a nobleman refused to listen to him so he ordered the other boys to hold him down while they whipped him for disobedience. The boy then ran home and cried to his father, Artemberis, a man of high stature amongst the Medes, who then complained to Astyages. Curious to know why this had happened, he brought Cyrus before his court and questioned him, to which Cyrus answered that he had disobeyed him, so he had to do it, and if he had to be punished for making this decision, then so be it. Astyages was surprised by his candor, and noticed that the boy looked a lot like him. He quickly put two and two together, and realized that the infant's exposure correlated with the age of the boy in front of him. So he summoned the shepherd to his court, and asked him whose son this was. When the shepherd said his own, he threatened to torture him, until the shepherd finally broke down, and the truth was revealed. He told him the entire story from start to finish. So then Astyages summoned Harpagus to his court, and asked him how he exactly had his daughter's son put to death. Seeing that the shepherd was in his presence, Harpagus knew better than to lie, so he told him the truth too, that he delegated the task to the shepherd. Instead of being furious at Harpagus, he said that the whole deed had made him suffer greatly personally, and with his relationship with his daughter, and now his conscience was relieved to hear that his grandson has survived. In order to celebrate this fortunate turn of events, Astyages kindly invited Harpagus to a banquet to celebrate his grandson's return and requested that he send his own 13-year-old son ahead earlier to accompany and educate Cyrus on court decorum. But when the boy arrived, he was seized, butchered limb by limb, and had his flesh roasted in a great oven. That night, attendants served lamb meat to the guests, except for Harpagus, who was treated with the dismembered body of his own son, except for the head, hands, and feet, as those were set aside and covered up in a blanket. When Harpagus decided he had eaten enough, Astyages asked him if he had enjoyed the feast, to which Harpagus replied that he did very much. Then, the attendants brought out the dismembered parts of his son wrapped in a blanket, and Astyages ordered him to take whatever he wanted. When he opened the cover and saw the remains of his son, the general kept his composure publicly, 
and silently gathered up the pieces of his son and carried them away for burial. This cannibal feast motive of chopping up one's son and feeding him to his father is common throughout Greek myth and literature. So proceed with caution here. I'm not saying it could not have happened. Human beings can be very cruel after all. But I'm also not saying that this motif doesn't make for great literature either, if you know what I mean. After dealing with Harpagus, Astyages then turned his attention to his young grandson. He summoned his advisors and asked if Cyrus was still a threat. They interpreted the events, that since the boy had already been declared king by the other boys and acted as a king in their game, the prophecy had already been fulfilled. Thus, a relieved Astyages had the young boy return to his royal parents in Anshan, where he was welcomed with great celebration. He revealed to his real parents his grandfather's plot to kill him, how he was raised by the shepherd and his wife, and the details of the feast. They were horrified, but there was nothing that they could do, as the Persians were much weaker than the Medes, in addition to them being allied with the Lydians and Babylonians. At the age of 17, already being remarkable for his nobility of character and strength of command, Cyrus succeeded his father as the king of Anshan. He ruled from 559 to 530 BC. He spent the next few years uniting the two Persian kingdoms under his leadership and extending his control over some of the Median tribes to the north. Meanwhile, Harpagus was still very angry over the murder and mutilation of his son. Unknown to Astyages, he had maintained close correspondence with Cyrus ever since the young boy returned to Anshan. Using his positions as both military commander and the most prominent of the clan chiefs, he worked behind the scenes to undermine the king's authority with the Median tribes, for Astyages had begun to treat the Medes harshly. He tried his best to persuade them to make Cyrus their leader instead, and accomplished this by exacerbating their fears of Astyages' absolute rule, and holding up Cyrus and the Persians as the living embodiment of ancient Aryan traditions. When he finally thought that it was time to strike, Harpagus sent word to Cyrus, but since the roads were under guard, he had to devise a plan. So he procured a hare, slit open its belly, and inserted a scroll inside, on which he wrote the details of his plan and encouraged him to lead a revolt against the Steages. Then he sewed up the hare's belly and gave it with hunting nets to his most trusted servant, sending him off with instructions to give the hare to Cyrus. When Cyrus found the letter, he immediately induced his fellow Persians to follow him in revolt. He did this through a cunning plan. He ordered everyone to gather with a scythe and clear out a certain tract of land that was covered with thorn bushes, which measured about two and a half miles on each side. They completed that task in one day. On the next day, Cyrus gathered together all of his father's goats, sheep, and cattle, sacrificed them, and held a great feast for everyone. After the meal, he asked them whether they preferred what they had did yesterday or today. Of course, they all said today. Yesterday was terrible, but today was pleasant. Cyrus then said that if they obey him, they will no longer have to be slaves to the Medes, but if they don't, they will continue to perform countless labors like yesterday. And so, the Persians enthusiastically accepted Cyrus's offer to be their leader, and they declared themselves free and independent from the Median yoke. One of those who pledged loyalty to Cyrus was a second cousin, Arsamis. Upon hearing of Cyrus's actions, Astyages demanded that Cyrus return to him at once, to which Cyrus replied that he, in fact, would be there much sooner than Astyages would like. Understanding exactly what this meant, he immediately declared war on his grandson in the summer of 552 BC. While both the Persians and Medes had a reputation as fearsome and loyal warriors, 
Astyages had the superior numbers on his side. So riding south from Ecbatana at the head of a large army, with boundless confidence in both his own military skills and the loyalty of his army, Astyages intended to put a final end to the dark dreams that had plagued his decades in power. However, he had appointed Harpagus as his lead general, apparently not realizing that the outrage he had inflicted upon him previously would have any repercussions. Riding out from Anshan to meet him, Cyrus intended to both fulfill his destiny and revenge himself upon the grandfather who had once called for his death. For the next three years, war engulfed the Zagros Mountains in three major battles, only two of which were mentioned by Herodotus, the first and the last. The first was the Battle of Herba in the fall of 552 BC. Not much is known about the battle, but it is most likely that it was a cavalry battle between Cyrus and an unknown Median cavalry commander. The outcome of this battle was such an overwhelming victory for Cyrus, though, that Astyages decided to personally lead the entire army into Persia. It also caused the northern tribes to revolt and ally themselves with Persia. Next, at some point in 551 BC, was the Battle of the Persian Border, so-called because it was fought on the Persian side of the Median-Persian border, on the road between Ecbatana and Pasargidae. Herodotus does not mention this battle, but it was mentioned as an indecisive battle in the much later work of Nicholas of Damascus. Under Cyrus's able leadership, the Persians had managed to defend their lands against a ferocious Median onslaught, but the troop numbers and imperial wealth of the Medes was tightening the noose around the Persian neck. Median victory seemed inevitable. But then, in 550 BC, as the third major battle was shaping up at Pasargidae, Harpagus sprung his long-awaited trap. In mid-battle, he openly defected to Cyrus, and some of his troops dutifully did the same, while others fled. Only those who continued to fight were those who had no part in the plot of Harpagus and Cyrus, and so the army of the Medes fell apart in an inglorious rout. When he learned of its disgraceful collapse, Astyages executed the advisors who told him it was safe to send Cyrus away, and then fled back to Ecbatana, with the remains of his army. He armed its citizens in preparation of defense of the city. But reading the writing on the wall, some Median soldiers took Astyages captive and handed him over to Cyrus and Harpagus. So just like that, the war was over, and Cyrus found himself as the king of Persia, Media, and northern Mesopotamia, in one bold and treacherous stroke. Just as this kind of rapid and incalculable success would soon come to define the new king, so would what happened next. Astyages was brought before Cyrus at Anshan, envisioning that he would be put to death, but already displaying his intelligence and grace that allowed his legend. Cyrus instead sent his grandfather off into a comfortable retirement. Having won over only some of the Median tribes to his side, Cyrus had no desire to antagonize those sympathetic to the old king. Similarly, the treasures of Ecbatana were relocated to Anshan, but the Median capital and local nobility were all spared of any repercussions in this transition of power. In fact, Ecbatana would become the summer capital for the Persians. The sources differ on the fate of Astyages. Herodotus says that Cyrus kept him at his court for the remainder of his life, while Stesias claims that he was made a governor of Parthia. However, once when Astyages was summoned to court, he was found mysteriously dead in the forest. The deed was blamed on an overzealous soldier named Obaris, but there was some suspicion that it was on the order of Cyrus. Anyways, after the battle, Cyrus married Astyages' daughter, Amitis, which means he married his aunt. Hey, they're royals after all. In any event, this marriage pacified several vassals, including the Bactrians, Parthians, and Saka. 
With Astyages out of power, all of his vassals, including many of Cyrus's relatives, were now under his command. His uncle Arsamis, though, who had been the king of Parsa under the Medes, therefore would have had to give up his throne. However, his transfer of power within the family seems to have been smooth, and it is likely that Arsamis was still the nominal governor of Parsa, where he lived out the rest of his days peacefully. His son Hystaspes, or Vishtashpa in Old Persian, who would have been Cyrus's second cousin, was then made satrap, or governor of Parthia. And thus, Cyrus united the twin Achaemenid kingdoms of Parsa and Anshan into Persia proper, a region now known as Persis. Cyrus's conquest of Media was merely the start of his wars, though. By the time he was finished, he would create the largest empire the world had yet seen, and he would rule over it in a way vastly different than his Near Eastern predecessors. For all that he accomplished, history would come to know him by a truly great moniker. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 31, Cyrus the Great. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless. But it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Asterii, Nymphs of the Stars, from his album, The Lyre of Hermes. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.